about metta. Could you, the question was about doing metta as a concentration practice and two different experiences she has of it. Sometimes uh, the focus is very much on the phrases and they're very clear and it feels very concentrated. Other times, and it's cool, not particularly emotional. Other times it's a real heartfelt feeling, not so, doesn't feel so concentrated. And that heartfelt feeling, are you aware of the phrases or the person, the beings you're sending it to? It, it seems like there's just two things. The, the image of the person, right. the phrases, right. the feeling. Right, exactly. It seems like I can only get two. <coughs> two at a time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is, it was my experience too. There are those three streams sort of of focus. Um, the, the feeling, which comes and goes, the phrases and the person you're sending it to or all beings or whatever. I found my experience was very much like yours, that at times one would really be highlighted or maybe two, and it seemed kind of awkward, like they weren't all coming together. And they do all come together. I mean, it took me ages where I could really focus on the phrases and the sense of the person, but metta just wasn't there. You know, I didn't feel hateful or anything, but I wasn't just <laughs> really in the feeling. And after some time, it, it came that uh, the phrases themselves became imbued with the feeling, you know. And sometimes I'd have to pull back and focus. I'd be really, really clear with the phrases or the person. And I'd begin to, with each phrase, really sort of feel the meaning, feel I consciously kind of feel the sense of myself meaning that phrase, not as a a heavy thing, but just sort of a reminder. And I found for some weeks it was the sense of jumping back and forth, and then they all came together. You know, so don't don't worry, and you're right, it is like that, the different streams. It's also about metta, and when she's sending metta to all beings and sort of mentally scans the earth or thinks about different beings, um, sometimes it's difficult because there are many beings now who are doing horrible things, uh, and it's hard to send loving kindness to them. Very true. Are you doing loving kindness as a as a full time practice, or is this you know as you do it 
at times during the day, part-time yet. Um, it is difficult. And metta is meant to be done in the way that's easiest. So that's why uh, before we do all beings, when we're going through ourselves, a benefactor, a friend, the last being we come to is the difficult one. You know, someone that is doing atrocities or that we've had a hard time with in our life because it is difficult to really genuinely feel the connection of loving kindness with a being like that. So um, first to know that that's normal. And second, don't try to push it or try to do the most difficult metta first. You know, like if I sit down and I'm not really in the flow and I think, well, I'll send metta to the people killing each other in Rwanda, you know, I can't get to metta with that. It's just too appalling. But if you want to work towards that at a time when you really are feeling the loving kindness flowing, start in the way that's easiest, you know, and then gradually expand. And in working with difficult people or hateful people, um, it's still with metta we try to tune into their lovable aspects, or <laughs> it's hard to, especially with people you don't know, all you know about them is the horrible things they do. For me, I, I, I try to tune into the fact that whatever they're doing is from ignorance, and in some twisted way, what they're doing is somehow they think is going to bring them happiness. You know, or they're doing it out of fear of retribution for themselves or whatever. Sister Fong, um, who, who works with Thich Nhat Hanh, has some beautiful passages in her recent autobiography where she talks about um, during times during the war in Vietnam when their friends had been killed by grenades or deliberately killed by um, people from either side of the conflict. They didn't ever know who. And she would have to write eulogies for them and she would meditate on it days until she could feel some sense of connection with the people who had killed her friends. You know, it would take her, it could take a long time. You know, and and one time um, she got to the place where the the people had said just before they killed, because one person had survived, the people had said, well, we have to do this. And so she took that and in really meditating on it got to the place where she believed or felt that they were doing it because if they didn't kill her friends, they themselves would be killed. So it's like out of fear. And you can come to understand the humanity, even behind horrible things. And that's one way to access it. But again, for doing loving kindness here, it's really to cultivate the feeling in yourself and begin to spread it out, not to you know, be super metawalas, where we're, you know, beaming with love for all beings every moment. So don't don't force it. If you're getting into real tight, pull back and do do what's easy, what comes clear. Not just a sound that gets louder and diminishes. It's 
and you see it kind of flying through the sky, right? Uh, so, the question about that kind of mental procedure, uh, you know, and it happens virtually with every sound, you identify it and probably picture it. Uh, but it's probably something like a survival mechanism in a way. You know what it is that's making the sound and whether or not it's a danger to you. And you see? Mm-hmm. So, I guess what I'd like to know is, is, is there any advantage to knowing sound in some other way than that? I mean, why would one cultivate the capacity for just hearing sound with no picture mm-hmm. and no idea? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His question is about sound, and it really works for all the senses, that when the sound arises, he doesn't just hear the sound, there's like an immediate mental picture of airplane, you know, and they're almost... They come together, but you never just get the sound without that. And it might be helpful to know it's an airplane as opposed to something potentially dangerous. So perhaps it's a survival mechanism. And is there any point to knowing just bare sound without that arising image or so? There can be. I mean, it's true that that immediate perception of what it is and then the superimposed mental image There are really three different things going on there, but it all happens so quickly. And we are really geared to the perception is the recognition, the identification of what it is. Definitely, it helps us a lot in our day-to-day life to know what's what, what's the sound, what's the sight and all. The danger of it and the reason it's helpful to just recognize hearing is hearing at times, and it happens sometimes in in a long retreat where actually that visual image might not arise is because our perception is not always accurate. So many times, and we'll talk about this more, we might be responding to a sound and the mental image or whatever that arises is actually not what is creating that sound. In in an even more subtle way, um, many of our perceptions give us the sense that we're a solid, unchanging self. And it seems really true, and that's the arising image or thought or feeling that arises with sense contact over and over and over. And so we think, this is me, I'm solid. You know, that's just the truth. And so we can go through life in a real delusion. So certainly, a lot of what we're doing, we say, just come close to the sense contact. Just notice what it is. It's not to deny the perception, but it's to bring in the possibility that our perception might not be accurate. It opens up a whole field of investigation. You know, it opens us, it jars us loose from the solidity of thinking we know what we are. So it is very helpful. Well, an interesting uh, observation in relation to what you just said. Uh, Yesterday, in listening to sounds, I heard a motor being started up. It sounded like a car that wouldn't start and then finally it started, and then it sounded as though someone were revving it. And it took me a long time to realize, you know, I was going through all the changes about why are they revving that motor? Right. Yeah. It was the lawnmower. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble by misperceiving. That's kind of really one of the roots of ignorance. Okay, we need to stop. So, have a insightful day. Free of misperception. <laughs> Especially.
first trying to make a few more clarifications in our own more illuminating nature. Yeah. Um, in practice, do you reflect about dreams when you wake up in the morning, for example, or not at all? Uh, she's, the question is about dreams. Do does one, I guess, or do I personally? I'm not sure. Is it no? Okay. Just in practice, because yeah. I experienced that sometimes dreams kind of showed me uh, some strong mm-hmm. patterns of behavior, mm-hmm. kind of identification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's about the uh, skillfulness of reflecting on one's dreams when you wake up. Does it? Can it be helpful? She goes on to say she has found it very helpful in illuminating patterns of behavior and roles, or just cut it all together. Um, I think at times, as you described, it can be helpful if the reflection is really kept to a minimum. And for myself, it's not every dream by any means. It certainly isn't getting into a sense of dream analysis. And I find in the most case, I can treat my dreams very much like my thoughts. Okay, it's done, it's over. There's nothing to think about. Occasionally, though, you can feel that a dream has some power in it, that there really is some strong sense of uh, intentionality or some pattern revealed in it. I usually tend to feel that emotionally. I think if there's something lingering when you wake up, then really pay attention to that. And you're paying attention to what's happening in the moment, that lingering, that sense. A short reflection can be helpful, the same as a psychological insight that might arise in your sitting. We give some conscious reflection time to it. With reflection, though, really be aware. I find the actual usefulness of reflection time is pretty short. And then what we're calling reflections, oh yeah, and that happened, oh yeah, this, and then you know it's the same thing, just spinning. And it's not reflection anymore, it's just let off into thinking. So be really watchful for that difference. And it's usually uh, shorter than we think, like one thought (laughs) we need for reflection and it changes quality. Yeah, Hillary. The question's about, can yogi mind states persist after retreat? Can you sp- I guess I need some clarification. Do you mean the ex- like a year being in tune with aversion? Do you mean like out of control aversion? Or- yeah, or desire or, or... So you mean that kind of explosive, yeah. Yeah, you decide that somebody did something, you know, during the event, period, you decide something that <laughs> you get locked into some desire aversion about a particular person in the retreat and for the next year, no way to change your mind. Hopefully nothing is that solid and unchanging that it will persist the same without movement for a year. But as I said last night, that sort of exaggerated quality of wanting or aversion you know, we call it yogi mind, but as I said, we could also call it staff mind or teacher mind. We all experience that at times in our life. When we, when we 
find ourselves doing really stupid things or really out of control, we're experienced that exaggeration of mental state. So it certainly can happen out of retreat. Um, and I think I have experienced coming out of a retreat, not for a whole year, but maybe for a little while after the retreat, um, it can vary where I'm, I haven't quite sort of closed up or balanced up again at the end of the retreat because in the retreat we get very vulnerable, very open, um, exaggerated mental states, and also we kind of regress. So that, you know, around November, you know, a lot of, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> she put a thumb in her mouth. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So everyone's sort of internal rhythm is different and it's possible for a retreat to end and we're still back there, you know, at two and a half. So <laughs> that's, that's one of the reasons we have integration week, you know, to sort of get the armor back on. So things could be a little exaggerated afterwards. That you'd stay locked into it for a year, I don't think that's so likely unless you're really not looking at it for a year. Or there's some something that came up in relationship to that person, some really deep wound or some deep holding or resentment that is still there and you're not really seeing, you know, haven't really moved through and so it's still active, you know, it just is more practice. But I wouldn't worry about, you know, you're going to be out of control from now on. No, no, it passes. Okay, we, I, we might only have time for one because it's 9.15. First question, um, I have a little bit of confusion around whether or not meta is done solely for a cultivation of compassionate mind within those who practice meta, or is there some kind of magical aspect to it in which the subjects of meta actually do benefit from our practice? Mm-hmm. The question is, some confusion about whether in doing metta it's just for the cultivation of that quality in ourselves or if there's some magical aspect that the metta really does affect the people that we're sending it to. I don't know if I like to use the word magical, you know, but there's technically in doing it, it's a cultivation of intention in our practice. So in the doing of it, I'm really cultivating the intention that truly wishes well to myself or whoever the person. I'm not, you're not at all focusing on a sense of effect. You know, that if I really wish well, then the person's suffering will go away, then they'll be okay. You know, it's really bringing the attention to the intention to, for that feeling, that mental state, that Brahma Vihara to arise in us more and more easily. And on the other hand, first it is said in in the commentaries that if you're really, really concentrated, uh, it does affect the person. And certainly there are many stories of the Buddha. Like there's one story where by the power of his metta, he stopped a raging elephant. You know, he just stood there and this elephant was raging, killing everyone in its path. And he just stood there and radiated metta. The elephant felt it and stopped. And uh, you actually often after a retreat or after a long period of doing metta, I've had the experience where it seems magical, where I'm 
going out in the world and just doing my thing. And people respond with this real warmth. And, you know, like a friend once said, was watching this and didn't know what had been going on. She said, what is in your body? You know, what, why are people being so nice to you? So there's something, something. <laughs> you be quiet. <laughs> I shouldn't have let him hear that. <laughs> So something definitely does communicate and is felt, but in doing it, the focus is on our own intention, not trying to change. You can't change someone's karma. And I I think we need to stop. Any questions coming up about your practice that aren't just coming and going or hanging around? sitting and concentrating or mindful of the breath, as I lose the experience of uh, rising and falling, I'm still noting with rising and falling, and I'm getting confused whether I should change the noting word to what I'm experiencing, and if I do that, then it would change all the time, so I just drop the noting altogether. The question is, as he's with the breath and noting with rising and falling, but he loses rising and falling. Changes to hearing or changes to reverse. Changes to reverse? It's almost changed like the the, the in-breath seems like it's falling or something, or else I'm getting confused. Oh, I see. So somehow, you're still with the experience of the breath, but somehow rising and falling doesn't seem to fit what's actually happening. But he's continuing to note rising and falling, and it gets confusing. I'd certainly say if you're, if you're noting anything like rising and falling and it doesn't seem to be matching what's happening, leading to mental confusion, it's not helpful. As soon as the noting starts to somehow seem that it's not fitting, it sort of pulls away from the sinking into the experience, which is the point of the mental labeling in the first place. So um, if you're finding a dissonance, and that sets any kind of mental activity, I'd maybe at that point actually drop the noting. I mean, for this point with the breath, because you could really start thinking, now, does it feel like rising? Last time it felt like falling. Now, does it rise? You know, it's like, <laughs> please. <laughs> if you really know it's hearing, note hearing. If you know it's pressure, note pressure. Um, or otherwise, you could just be very carefully with the breath, and when rising and falling seems to fit again, use it. I'd say that's in distinction to, say, for example, noting rising, falling, or in, out. That seems to fit, and you're noticing a lot of other sensations. For example, rising, you might know there's pressure, tingling, burning, or so. Uh, Don't try to note all of those sensations, so that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when there's this dissonance. The noting is never meant to lead to more thinking, or analyzing, you know, that that's not the point. If it gets like that, just simplify. You know, use a really generic note like sensation or emotion or thing happening, you know, just to get your attention into it.
Michelle mentioned yesterday that she sometimes does meta practice while walking. Mm -hmm. uh, could you explain a little bit about how that technique works? Question is about doing meta practice while walking. When one is doing um, full-time metta practice or any of the Brahma Viharas, you do it all the time, sitting, walking, eating, whatever you're doing. And if you're not, it's still, it could be quite fine um, if you're doing it, say, once or twice a day here now, to do it while walking. And essentially, it's just the same as sitting. You're walking back and forth, um, the same as in the Vipassana walking, but you don't pay attention to the walking. In other words, the mindfulness is not with the walking or your physical sensations at all. And you do exactly the same thing. You bring up a sense of yourself, if you're sending it to yourself, or the benefactor, or the friend, whoever. And you, you really do just the same. You hold the image of the person, have a sense of it, although please do walk with your eyes open, and uh, repeat the phrases and the feeling, if that's there, sink into that. And that's really, it's exactly the same. So in that walking, you might find you don't have to focus so much on going slowly. Often you can tell um, people who are doing metta because they, they don't have that slow mindfulness of their movements that happens uh, when you're being mindful uh, of mind and body in Vipassana. And sometimes I find for myself when I'm walking with the metta, even if, say, I'm staying with dear friend, start with myself for five or ten minutes, move to the dear friend, I, I might find if it starts to feel a little tight or encapsulated that, say, a chickadee goes by or a dog comes by, then just for the next set of phrases, I'll send it to that being. It's a just kind of a nice way of opening it up and connecting to who's ever around. Somebody walks by, a squirrel goes up the tree, whatever. I found myself sending it to the crickets a lot last year. It's just a way to uh, open up the field a bit, but still be connected, and then again go back to whoever your subject is. It's fun doing it and walking. That's how I feel, too. I know there was some announcement, but I can't remember it. I'm sure it was on the lines of, please be kind to one another. Oh, Tim? Yeah. Um, the question about uh, eating quantities of food. Um, what I'm trying to do right now is figure out Exactly how much to eat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're keeping a graph <laughs> like. So that I'm not, don't feel full at the first sitting, but that I'm not starving at you know, 10:30, something like that. Is um, so so I can keep going, you know, working to to that end to try to not feel too full and to not end up being hungry. Is there some is there anything you have to say about that? And also, is there some innate benefit from just not eating a whole lot, you know, like not eating dinner? And so, you know, I could pay attention to, you 
<laughs> Good. <laughs> and they benefit. The question was about eating. It's kind of two. One is he's just sharing. He's in process of finding exactly the right amount to eat. <laughs> so he's not too full and not too hungry. <laughs> and the second, I don't have a whole lot to say about that except please don't, you know, get too too tight around it because it changes all the time. Uh, it'll change the balance. Like some days you might, you just really pay attention when you're eating. You get, or I got, so I could tell, okay, that's enough now. Rather than looking outside and trying to think how much food would be enough. Yeah, right, okay. The second question is, is there some innate value in, say, not eating much? For example, not eating dinner. He says he knows he could just be with hunger, hunger. But is there some innate value in that? Really um, exploring that is one of the points of taking eight precepts. You know, the eight precepts, the, the one that really changes things for us here is that you don't eat solid food after noon. And, uh, of course, all the monks and nuns, all ordained people live that way. And in Buddhist countries, anyone who is coming to a monastery or going on a retreat, most retreats are conducted in that manner where you don't eat after noon. Um, It's different for different people. I mean, I myself, of course, lived that way for a year or so when I was in Thailand. And I found for myself and given my body type, it was really fine. I I found I didn't actually need any food afternoon. And it's not just noting hunger, hunger. Actually, that passes fairly quickly. At least it did for me. And it wasn't this actual craving for food. What it did was just release this whole amount of energy and obsession and mental thought that went into food and what can I have and when will I eat and how much will I eat. And from noon on, you just knew that was something you didn't think about. It actually was great. It gives so much time and freedom, uh, really. Like, you know, when you fast, all of a sudden there's so much time in your day that you didn't have before. So sort of not eating afternoon um, can really open that up. And it also, of course, is very instrumental in showing us relationships we might have to food or to fear of not having enough or seeing. Of course, in monasteries, you don't see other people eating afternoon because nobody's doing it. So that's harder here. Um, But I must say, we haven't been pushing it so much this retreat because we've also found um, for quite a few people that uh, on a long retreat, um, it physically is quite difficult for them. Like we have a, uh, quite a few friends who lose a lot of weight um, when they're on eight precepts and get a little bit weak. And it's not so much obsession in the mind, but that really physically it's hard on them. And they come back from Burma, you know, Joseph comes back 20 pounds lighter. It's hard to imagine, you know, where does he lose it from? But um, so we're not pushing it, but... Personally, I, uh, I found it very interesting to play with. My first three-month retreat I ever did, you could you know, decide to do it or not. So I, I did it, I think, for about six weeks. And I had a kitchen job putting out the tea. And one of the maintenance guys, who since turned into one of my good friends, but I didn't know him then, every day I was putting out the tea, he'd come in and make a cheese and tomato sandwich. 
And every day you go, Carol, you want a cheese and tomato sandwich? Which I was craving cheese so much. And I'd say, no, Rodney, I'm on eight precepts. The next day, the same thing. You know, this went on for a month. It was a real test. Um, so it's worth playing with. <laughs> He wants to know if it's generally seen that energy that would go into concentration or so is available for, I'm not concentration, digestion, available for deeper concentration and insight. There's no guarantees. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say, okay, I don't eat dinner, I suddenly drop three levels in samadhi. (laughs) There's no guarantees. Certainly, actually, um, overeating is one of the five obsessions with senses that the Buddha talks about. And in this society, you know, mostly we're not uh, too heavy on the starvation side. So uh, it's, I would say if you have a lot of questions coming up about it, explore it for yourself. But there is no, if you don't eat after, your practice suddenly gets better. You know, uh, sorry. Okay. Do you have any questions? Okay. I've got one. Uh, one of the techniques, I believe, for dealing with sleepiness is to visualize white light. And they say it's easy. <laughs> I'm not having much success with that. I try it. Yeah. Is there a technique to that? He says uh, one of the techniques for dealing with sleepiness is to visualize white light which is true, bringing uh, light into the mind is, is supposed to help. And he says, they say it's easy, but he's not having much success. Um, you know how they say it's all easy? <laughs> Everything's easy. Uh, I, I think different techniques um, might work better for, for different minds. For instance, some people can visualize very easily and some people can't. So. I don't think there's one technique that's easy across the board. Um, how are you doing it? Are you like like starting with a little so circle, sort of? Uh-huh. So I just said, let me see the light or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know where to look. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing's happening. I get a little spot. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you might try. I don't know if this is going to be any better. I can see the light. You know, Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> well, you, but that's not why. No. You might just try, but I wouldn't make a big thing about it. But maybe not all over, but just try visualizing like a, a circle. You know, just, just and, and like imagine seeing it, so to speak, rather than trying to bring it in, sort of like imagine that you're seeing this circle of of white light, and don't push too hard, you know, and just see if it expands. Um, and go to the other techniques if it, if it doesn't help, or sit with the eyes open, and then when it's light inside, close close the eyes. And yeah. Yeah, um, in response to a, a question, 
question yesterday morning about um, uh, working with angry thoughts and, and the difficulty of not getting caught up identifying with them. Uh, Joseph recommended, or one recommendation he made was to kind of dip down into uh, the, the body level, the sensation, to feel the contraction, to stay there. And I, I found that helpful sitting, but I didn't know what to do with it during walking. I found mm -hmm. it difficult, you know, stopping and, and trying to do that. And the contraction, you know, there was really a lot of feeling that stayed there. I didn't know when to start walking again. And I got into a lot of struggle around it. Mm -hmm. uh, he's talking about um, working with angry thoughts, what, what Joseph was asked yesterday, that we tend to identify and moving into the body to feel the contraction, which he found worked fine in the sitting. But in the walking, he got into some sense of struggle about ooh, how much to stop or when to start walking again. Um, did you find that when the angry thoughts would come up, you would notice it in the walking and stop right away? Or what would you do? Yeah, I mean, there'd, there'd be thoughts, mm -hmm. stop, mm -hmm. and there was a whole lot of... A lot of feelings, which it was easy to be yeah. with. Mm -hmm. And then where did the struggle come in? I kind of wanted to stay, mm -hmm. but I, I would have been doing standing meditation. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, just stay with it. If it's really strong, these questions, it's so strong, you kind of wanted to stay with it instead of starting to walk, but then it would have been standing. <laughs> so what? <laughs> standing, that's fine. Stay with it. Let it be there. Really explore it. Um, you might find, it doesn't, you know, it's not like we do better however many walking passes we make, you know, we're not keeping a record. So if you spend the whole walking and you only go from there to there, but you're present, great. You know, um, you you might find though, as if, as emotions come and go, that as it begins to fade, but it's still there. You don't have to wait till it's totally, completely gone to start walking. But it's it's not so engrossing. It's not catching your mind so much. You still have some background sensations, but you can go ahead and reconnect with the walking at that point and start going. If it zooms up again, the anger, stop again. And that's my son doesn't need to feel like a struggle, you know. It's just be with what's predominant, not some idea of what what you should be doing. Yeah. Good. I'm working with intention, um, and not the intention that's propelling, propelling my practice, but the intention just to take a step. Right. the question back there he's working with intention and so you know noticing intention before a step and before reaching and before turning but then there's so much to do because you have to notice thinking and you have to know it just feels like it's getting all jammed up was that sort of the drift is it useful 
after you let go of noticing thinking. And partly what starts to happen um, is you begin, as it's not just adding the intention. God knows there's, a, there's an intention before every single movement or thought. You're not going to notice all of them. Trying to catch every one of this kind of, you know, like a cat at a mouse hole kind of energy isn't so helpful because you get really tense. and It's like jumping into the next moment. What am I missing? I'm missing it, you know. Just settle back. And you're not going to catch every intention just as it's quite difficult at times to notice every thought. Things are happening so quickly. And in fact, as the practice goes on, it might seem rather than calmer, you're noticing just more and more and more things happening at 17 million, or is it trillion, in the blink of an eye. That's how fast. So there's no way we're going to notice them all. And working with this practice, yes, it is helpful to notice intention. It's extremely helpful because it's that link that really helps us see cause and effect. It really helps us see how the mind gives rise to some intention and the body moves. There's an unpleasant sensation in the body. It gives rise to some intention and the desire to move. Just the cause and effect, and it really can lead us into a deeper experience of impersonality, of anatta. You see how we identify with the intention, but it's really just another arising phenomenon based on conditions. So it is very, really useful to explore, just the same as thoughts are, but not to set up the idea, now I'm going to notice every intention, or now I'm going to notice every thought, or every sensation when I lift my arm, you know. So we work with the sense of settling back and relaxing in this moment, and then noticing what arises as predominant experience. So sometimes intention, maybe before turning or before beginning a step, might be more noticeable. Maybe you don't notice the intention because there's this big thought of, I'm so sick of this. And that's the predominant experience. Do you see what I mean? It's sort of having the fluidity of momentary concentration to notice what's up. If we set the mind too strongly looking for intention, you might notice more intentions, but the thoughts could be completely derailing your mindfulness and leading you into judgment. You don't notice it because you're so looking at intention. It's subtle, yeah. 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 He's the feeling of intention is subtle. He needs to make some effort to look for it. You can, but pick um, like big movements. For example, the ones I I use a lot when I'm first starting and I haven't begun to feel it because it is subtle. It's sort of a it's hard to describe. It's not really physical sometimes. It's sort of a mental. Click. It's hard to describe. It might be. It might be. I mean, it can be different for different people, and at different times for you, it can be different. So pick, like, say, about to stand up, 
or about to start walking, or when I'm walking, um, if I'm not to the point of noticing the beginning of each step, I can really try to notice intending to stop, intending to turn, intending to start again. And you can play with it in the walking. It's a good place. Just stop and see if you notice what that feeling is just before you take the step. I know Joseph has a story about how he was waiting for intention one time walking and he like stood there half an hour because he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't find him. You know? So you can do that. There's nowhere to go. And, uh, and you might be feeling it not knowing it. You might be looking so hard that you're not just noticing what's there. So just pick big things. Reaching, turning. Those are good ones. So have a mindful day filled with intentionality.